And that's exactly what has happened with David. He and his men, back in chapter 27, made the decision to leave Israel and to go into the land of the Philistines. He was tired, and I understand why. He was tired of being on the run. He was tired of Saul chasing him in the desert. He was tired of having his, him and his men uh, under the threat of death by Saul. And he decided to go to the Philistines. Unfortunately, he left the land of God's blessing, the land of God's inheritance, Israel, and he makes that decision to go into a land of paganism and a land of idolatry. Look over in 27.1. You see the decision right there. 27.1 says, Then David said to himself, It's very important, as I said the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, what kind of things you're saying to yourself. Are you counseling yourself from the Scriptures, or are you discouraging yourself with your own thoughts? And David said here to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me to do, no other option at all, nothing better for me to do than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, went into the land of the Philistines. He and the 600 men who were with them, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath, and all their families were there as well. Now, while he's in the land of the Philistines, he's making raids against uh, the enemies of Judah. He's going back into Judah and in the, the fringes of the territory. He's making raids against the, the enemies of Judah. Only he, he was trying to fool the king of Gath, who was the Philistine king. He was telling the king of Gath, he said, look, the king would say, where'd you go today to make a raid? He said, I went into Judah to make raids. Now, the king thought he was attacking his own people. He thought David was attacking his own people of Judah. And so the king is being deceived. David is purposely deceiving the king, and he's bringing back spoils to the king and says, look, here's some spoils from the people I attacked over there. So the king, needless to say, is very pleased with David. He's very pleased. In fact, he's so pleased with David that he says in chapter 28, verse 1, look, I want you and your men to go to war. We're going to go to war against Israel. We Philistines are. I want you and your men to go with us to war, to battle against Israel. Now David's going to, be, have, to have to become a traitor to his own country in order to do this. He's going to be, become a traitor. That's what he's going to have to do. In fact, things get worse than that. The king of Gath, the Philistine king, says in chapter 28, verse 2, I want you to be my personal bodyguard. So let's get this straight. The future king of Israel is now going to go to war against Israel as the personal bodyguard, bodyguard of a Philistine king. That's the scenario we have before us. And because David is pretending to be on the side of the Philistines all this time, he's going to face two crises that are going to bring him into a very severe test in his life. In chapter 29, he will face a crisis of allegiance. Who, who, is, he, who is he allied with, anyway? In chapter 30, he's going to face a crisis of mutiny. But we're going to see, fortunately for us and for David, that the Lord is able to deliver his people through his gracious, gracious intervention, as he is always gracious to us, even when we get ourselves in way over our head, as we often do. The Lord comes to his aid. Chapter 29, I'm not going to read it again. Let's first of all look at the crisis of allegiance David is in. Now, chronologically speaking, you have to understand that chapter 9, 29 actually takes place before chapter 28. In chapter 28, the Philistines are way up in northern Israel. They're preparing to fight a battle up there against the Philistines, against Israel. So they're all up, Israel's camped up there too. They're ready to fight the battle. But in chapter 29, the Philistines are camped in a place called Aphek. Now, Aphek is on the way to the northern part of Israel, but it's only about 30 miles away from 
the city of Gath. There's still about 40, 40 miles to go until they get to the actual site of the battle. So chapter 29 is a flashback, going back in time a little bit. Actually, it's brilliant writing. The, the, the guy who wrote, whoever wrote First and Second Samuel, um, I mean, we know the Lord, of course, inspired his word, but whoever wrote that was a brilliant writer. He could have been a modern-day mystery writer. Because if you recall, back in chapter 27 and 28, he kept us in suspense. Remember in chapter 28, he says, uh, David is getting ready to go to battle against Israel, and then you're going to be, he's going to be the bodyguard of the king of the Philistine, uh, of this king of, of Gath. And then the story stops there. And then it goes on and talks about Saul and the witch of Endor. We talked about that last week. So we've been left hanging all this time, wondering what's going to happen with David. Well, guess what? The story continues in chapter 29. He picks it up again. However, we go back in time a little bit from chapter 28. This is before they get to the battle site that they were in chapter 28. They're going back in time, revisiting something that happened before then. They're in effect before they go further north. They're stopping there to make last-minute preparations for the battle before they march on to the northern Israel territory, still 40 miles away from the site of the battle. Well, they're there, and the Philistine troops are being inspected by their leaders. Leaders are coming by, passing by hundreds and thousands, it says in verse 2. Tons of soldiers the Philistines have. This is going to be a massive army. And so the Philistines are being inspected by their leaders. Their commanders come by, and, and at the rear of the army stands David and his men along with the king of Gath. They're all together back there. And when the com commanders see David in verse 3, they ask this great question. I love this question. What are these Hebrews doing here? What are these Hebrews doing here? Now, that's a good question. That's a very good question. What are these Hebrews doing here? Uh, wait a minute. These Hebrews are fighting with us against their own people? What are they doing here? They ask that question. Well, it's a question so far no one has asked, by the way. King of Gath has just let him come in and, and work with him. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is they had no business being there at all. They should have been where Hebrews are, Hebrews are supposed to be, in the land of Israel, right? In the land of Judah. Hebrews don't belong in Philistine territory. They are the enemies of the Philistines. And the Philistines are the enemies of God to make it even worse. Even the term they use here, the Philistines use this term Hebrews, that's a term used by foreign peoples, especially the Philistines. Uh, it's a derogatory term. They meant it in a derogatory sense. It's kind of a racial slur. It's kind of a put-down, the way they said it. What are these Hebrews doing here? Remember on the other side, the, David would say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It's kind of a racial slur, kind of a put-down here. Uh, and the Philistines are right to question Israel's presence here. What are these Hebrews doing here? They had no business there at all. Uh, Philistia is a land of idolatry. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where they are pagans. They don't know God. However, Israel worshiped the one true God. And whether they want to admit it or not, David is now in alliance with the Philistines. They have pledged their allegiance to the Philistines. Uh, that's what's happening here. And this is a sticky situation they're in. And I'm sure that it was David who never thought this one through when he decided to go to this, this country. So w whether it's intentional or not, here they are going off to war for the cause of Philistia and for their gods. you know that? Whenever an army went out to battle back then, they went under the banner of their gods. So David is caught up in the middle of all this now. In the situation, it's a crisis. And this is no lighthearted matter, by the way. It's nothing to, to think lightly of. It's a very serious situation he's got himself into. It's a crisis situation. And it's a crisis involving allegiance. Allegiance. Where exactly is their allegiance? Where is the allegiance of David at this time? Right now, it's with the Philistines. 
whether he wants it to be or not. He's in the middle of it right now. But did the Lord ever want this to happen? Did, his, did the Lord ever want his people to be in allegiance or in alliance with the Philistines? Did he ever want his people to be in alliance with anyone but himself and Israel? Of course not. But David now has got himself into an unholy alliance. Uh, his hands are tied right now. He's in a real mess of a situation. And we could rationalize this away. We could say, well, David had no choice in the matter. Saul was trying to kill him in, in Israel and Judah. And he, and, he, and he figured, I have no recourse but to go to the, the land of Philistia, where the Philistines are. And he got, to, got there and went to the king of Gath. And he had to manipulate that guy and deceive him so he could survive. It's a matter of survival, right? We could say that, and I'm sure that we've said that, by the way, in our lives. Well, you know, I had to do this because you know, I, there's no choice in the matter. I couldn't serve the Lord 100% because, you know, it's a sticky situation. I kind of had to get myself out of jam, and I had to do these kind of things. I'm sure we say the same things. But did the Lord really expect his people to seek refuge among the ungodly for 16 months? That's how long David was in that land. 16 months. And what about the spiritual condition of David's men? Could they withstand the, the, the idolatry that was everywhere in the land of Philistia? You know, you put spiritually immature people and weak believers into a, a, a temptation, the place of temptation and idolatry and so on, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble here. And David had said to Saul in chapter 26, he says, Don't drive me out of Israel where the inheritance of the, of the Lord is. He knew. David knew this was not a wise spiritual decision to make. He had said so much in chapter 26. Um, and it wasn't wise. You know, it's always unwise for believers to make an unholy alliance together with unbelievers. Always an unwise decision. It's not the will of God at all. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6? He said as much. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to you, verse 14. Paul says there, Do not be unequally yoked together with what? Unbelievers, right? Don't be bound together. Don't be un unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership? Have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God says, no, there's no alliance to be made with unbelievers and believers. They don't share anything in common. They don't, they don't, unbelievers don't know Christ. How can you get into a, a serious uh, alliance with them? I don't care if that's marriage. That's an unholy alliance if a believer is trying to marry an unbeliever. That is an unholy alliance. And we might think, well, you know, see, I've got, uh, I have to marry this person because, see, the circumstances are such that I have to. No, you see, again, what David did. It's an unholy alliance. An unholy alliance would be getting involved for a believer to get involved with an unsaved business partner and start a business together. That's a major mistake, by the way. Or maybe for a church to side up with other churches that hold the false doctrine or wrong doctrine, the ecumenical movement. We get involved trying to reach the world for Christ, supposedly, and we get involved with the wrong churches. That is never the will of God. So what are these Hebrews doing here? He asked. They asked. Good question. Let's see how the king of Gath answered that question. He says, in effect, in verse 3, he says, uh, Don't you know who this is? This is David. This is David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel. 
He's been with me these days or years. It's, it's a phrase referring to a period of over a year. He's been there 16 months. Achish says, I have found no fault in him. You see that in verse 3? I have found no fault in him. It says at the end of verse 3, by the way, I find no fault in him the day since the day he deserted to me. He deserted to me. Uh, actually, that he's a deserter. You know, he's on our side now. He's, not, he's no longer with Israel. He's with us now. His allegiance has changed to us. That same word where it says deserted is literally the phrase he fell to me. It's used elsewhere in contexts like this to describe those who fall away and go over to another person. In other words, they're defectors. They're defecting from their people, and they're going over to another group of people. It's the idea of a transfer of allegiance. And so David's allegiance, whether it's a pretense for him or not, is nevertheless an allegiance to the Philistines at this time. He's allying himself with the enemy. And David's really walking a fine line here, isn't he? He has really got himself <laughs> into a real mess here. David's a very cunning man, by the way. Saul said at one time to some people, he says, I hear that David's very cunning. Oh, yeah, he knew he was very cunning, very sly individual. He was. But the commanders are angry at Achish, and they said, make the man go back that he may return to this place where you have assigned him. Now, the place where the king of, Ach the king of Gath had assigned David in the land of Philistia was a place called Zik Ziklag. It was kind of a far away from the, the palace over in Gath, and David and his people lived in Ziklag in the land of the Philistines for, 16, for several months. And they say, send him back to Ziklag. In other words, send him back to the land of the Philistines while we're in battle. If he goes, to us, if he goes with us to battle, what if, what if his allegiance changes in the middle of the battle? What if he turns on us and starts fighting our own men and, and maybe in, in the rear of the army or something, he kills our own people? What better way for David to endear himself back to Saul, the king of Israel? They all knew that Saul was after David. Everybody knew that. It wasn't a secret. What better way to endear himself to the king of Israel than to turn on us in battle? These guys, are not, these guys are not stupid. Achish, not so bright, but these other guys, lords of the Philistines and commanders, are very bright. And Achish had been fooled, but these guys cannot be fooled. They don't trust David, and rightly so. He's not to be trusted in this circumstance, honestly. Uh, David had been deceiving Achish for months now. Um, but the Philistine commanders say, you know, the, he had said, is not this David? They say the same thing here. Is not this David? This is verse 5 of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten, ten thousands. Remember that song? Here we keep singing this song, by the way. Keep bringing this. But this song was very popular, by the way, uh, in Israel and Philistia. Everybody knew this song. If they didn't, this, was the, this, this was the most popular song of, of the time, apparently, because they keep referring to it. Don't you remember he's the guy that killed uh, thousands of people? They sang in songs about this guy. Isn't, is this not David, who, of whom they sing in the dances? He's slain his ten thousands. Achish had said in verse 3, is not this David, the same phrase, by which he probably meant, you know, the guy that's trying to kill, that, that Saul's trying to kill? Uh, his reputation as a warrior is beyond question. We all know what David can do. He's a great warrior. He can help us beat the, the Israelites. That's what Achish is thinking. But the commanders, they ask the same question with a, day, with a different emphasis. They say, is not this David? In other words, the guy that killed the Philistines? Because the song that was sung... When, it, when they said David killed his, Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, that song was sung after Goliath had been killed by David. Don't you understand, Achish? This guy is the guy that killed Goliath. Uh, we don't trust him at all. We don't trust him. But Achish did trust him. Look at Achish's complete trust in David. Verse 3. He says, I find no fault in him. 
Reminds us of Pilate, doesn't it? Who found no, found no fault in Christ, which was true. There was no fault in Christ at all. But he says of David here, I find no fault in him. Verse 6, Achish says to David, You have been upright to me, David. You're pleasing in my sight. I have not found evil in you. And then in verse 9, Achish says, David, you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Wow. He's totally taken in by David. Very, David, like I said, very cunning individual. Achish is, Achish is very impressed with the character of David. I trust you fully. I would give you my, I'm going to trust you with my life. And I'm sure that David was a model citizen while he was in the land of Philistia. But apart from his, noble, his, his normal good behavior, David has been deceiving Achish the whole time he's been with him. So this perception that Achish has of David is not totally correct. He's wrong about this. He was convinced that David had changed his allegiance from Israel to Philistia. He's absolutely convinced of it. You might say that he considered David to be a Benedict Arnold. That's what he thought. This guy's a traitor to his own country. He isn't, he's not with them anymore. He's with us. We, I trust him. But Achish thought that was an advantage. He thought David could help him out. David was making raids against his own people of Judah. David led him to believe, but he really wasn't. He was bringing uh, Achish the spoils from battle. Man, this, was, he, this, is a good, this is a benefit to Achish. So Achish thinks this is a great thing. He knows David's a great warrior, and so he's, he's trusting him. And so great was his trust in him, he says, I'm going to make you my personal bodyguard. My personal bodyguard. Now, you can't trust the person more than that. Back then, guess what? <laughs> You're going to get a personal bodyguard. You better have a guy you can trust that's not going to turn and kill you. He completely trusts David. He's committing his life into the safekeeping of David. You know, think about this for a minute. He could have chosen a Philistine, should have chosen a Philistine soldier to be his bodyguard, shouldn't he have, by all rights? Uh, out of all the soldiers in Gath, out of all the soldiers in Philistia, he chooses a Hebrew, David, to be his personal bodyguard, of all things. David has him completely fooled. He even, David even says in verse 8, I'm, I'm willing to go fight against Israel. He says, uh, what are you talking about I can't go with you to war? He said, what have I done wrong? He said, I came before you this day that I may go and... That I'm, should I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? I'm willing to fight those guys over there. But Achish is outnumbered by the other lords and commanders, and he's forced to tell David, no, you've got to go back to Ziklag, stay out of the battle while we're fighting. That's what their decision is. So David returns to Ziklag. Now I have a question at this point. Where is David's allegiance? Would you know from reading this chapter? Where is David's allegiance at at this time? Is it with Israel and the Lord, or is it with the Philistines? Now, he's got some people fooled, Achish being one of them, maybe some others. And maybe he has some of us fooled, too, because he's very good at what he does here, I have to admit. David's an inter interesting guy. But, I, you know, I, I know in my heart that David's got to be committed to the Lord, right? He's got to be. But let me ask you a question. Is this how believers should be? Is it okay? Does the Lord mind if we live a double life? Is that okay with the Lord? Is it okay for a believer to say one thing and practice another? That's what David was doing. Is it okay for that to happen? You know, that's why P Paul was so upset with Peter. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, 11. <clears throat> Same thing happened, will happen later on in the New Testament. Galatians 2, 11. Paul says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, <clears throat> when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul uh, getting on Peter, he says, verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, Peter did. 
But when they came, when the Jews came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. He was afraid what the Jews might think that he was eating with the Gentiles. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. <clears throat> Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? You see, Peter was eating meals with the Gentiles, probably not according to the dietary restrictions of the Jews. He was probably eating pork and stuff like that, living it up, having a good time at the meals. And then the Jews showed up, and Peter said, wait a minute, I'm getting out of here because they're going to come down on me for doing this. And so he stopped hanging out with the Gentiles. And Paul says to Peter, you're not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. He was being hypocritical. Believers are to be truthful and straightforward and sincere and upright in their conduct and in their words. That's how we're supposed to be, not a double life we're living somehow, saying one thing and doing another. Philippians 1.27 says, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In a manner worthy. We're to live transparent lives before people. People see you at work, they're to think one thing, that person's a believer in Christ. He doesn't uh, live a double life off doing things that are wrong in the sight of God while you're trying to pretend you're a Christian on the other hand. Uh, there's no, no doubt, should be no doubt about your allegiance at all. Your allegiance should be to Christ, totally, 100%. We're not divided in our allegiance. There's no pretense about our, our allegiance to Christ. It's, it's real. We don't pr profess Christ with our mouths and then we betray him in our actions. We don't do that. It's not how a believer acts. So where is your allegiance tonight? Are you being straightforward about the truth of the gospel? Or is there something in your life that's a little bit shady that shouldn't be there at all? For David, at least at this point in his life, it appeared that he, his allegiance was with, with the enemies of God. That's what it looked like. That's what 20, 20, chapter 29 looks like to me. But in spite of this mess that David creates, because he had to go to the land of the Philistines because he was worried about Saul and not all this stuff and he didn't trust the Lord, you know, the Lord has mercy upon him anyway. The Lord has mercy upon him. You never know how the Lord think, is going to work things out for his people, but he's often gracious to do that when we get in over our heads, isn't he? We get ourselves in a jam and the Lord somehow pulls us out. Thank goodness for that. Thank the Lord for that, right? So instead of marching with the enemy to battle, David uh, has an input to the crisis here because the Philistines, the commanders come in and they say, look, send this guy back to Ziklag. What's he doing here? What are the Hebrews doing here with us? This is ridiculous. So again, we've seen it again and again. David has been providentially delivered by God, this time by means of the Philistine military officers who make the decision these guys can't go with us to war. And so they bring David's Philistine career in the army to a speeding end. A speedy end. Can you imagine uh, later on down <laughs> thinking about David's resume? Oh, yeah, there was that time I was in the Philistine army. But thankfully, it was a short-lived time in the Philistine army. And so the Lord had not forgotten his promise to David. Remember what so many people said, look, David, you're going to be the king one day. What are you doing over here in the land of the Philistines? You don't need to be here. You're going to be a king, and the Lord's going to see to it that he is going to be the king. You know, if the Lord's intent on something happening, guess what? It's going to happen. And no matter how we blunder it, no matter how many blunders we make in our life, no matter how, much, how many unwise decisions the Lord is going to have his will done if he intends to do a certain thing. I thought of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> who was speaking of the, the apostles were preaching the gospel of Christ, and 
and, uh, and there was this, an uproar going on, and Gamaliel said, stop. He was the rabbi. He said, wait a minute, everybody. He said in Acts 5, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be, even be found fighting against God himself. So David's crisis of allegiance is averted because the Lord intervened graciously, providentially. And then secondly, look at chapter 30, a crisis of mutiny. A crisis of mutiny. Look at verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. That's where they'd been living with their families. They had been living there for several months with their wives and children. They go back to Ziklag because the the commanders say, get out of here, you're not fighting with us. And they came on the third day, three days of traveling. And it says that the the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. Remember that David had made raids on the Amalekites? Now they're making a raid on them because the land's unprotected right now. Everybody's getting ready to fight the Israelites. So Amalekites had come and raided Ziklag, the town where David and his people had lived, and they burned it with fire. Verse 2, it says here, They took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for each for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. So David and his men go back to Ziklag. They had dodged that bullet. Uh, they didn't have to go to war against Israel. Uh, David was released from his short-lived duty as a bodyguard for the king because of the gracious providence of God. However, their relief is short-lived. They're, they're, they go from one crisis to the next. They left one crisis, now they go to another crisis. While they were gone... Their old enemies, the Amalekites, came in and made a raid on Ziklag and set the city on fire. And they got all of the wives. Remember, the, it wasn't just the 600 men, but there were families now, growing families with women and wives and children and sons and daughters and so on. And the Amalekites captured all of these people, and they took them away. You can imagine. We can, ima- we can sympathize with this situation. What it would be like to have your loved ones kidnapped like this. And everything destroyed and every, everybody taken away. We can imagine what it would be like. Now, it says here, the text says that no one had been killed. But the David and his men, know, they don't know that. They're, they're probably thinking, I'm sure they're thinking the worst. I know they are. Look how great the pain was they experienced. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and they wept until there was no strength in them to weep. They're just an emotional wreck. I mean, there's not enough boxes of tissues to wipe the tears off out of their eyes. Just exhausted with weeping. And if that's not enough, it's verse 6 says, the people, the followers of David, considered stoning him to death, putting him to death. And I like the Lexham. There's a Bible called the Lexham English Bible. I know it's a strange name. But I like the translation here. It says, David was in a very precarious situation. Yeah, I would say so, right? very precarious situation. I mean, it's one thing to get death threats from Saul. It's one thing to get death threats from the Philistines even, but not now he's getting them from his own men. His own men are now turning against him because they're so bitter 
And their bitterness is, learning, is, is leading them to turn on their leader. Now, the, now, you remember when David was in the stronghold in Adullam? He was down in the desert and back in chapter 20, I think it was, 21. And, and all of a sudden, all these people started showing up at his doorstep. They started coming down. Those who were depressed, it says. Those who were, were uh, bitter in their soul. Those who were uh, in debt. Remember that? All those guys and all kinds of problems. They all came to David to follow him. They came to him voluntarily. They came to him because they trusted him. They came to him and they followed him even to the land of the Philistines. They're ready to follow him almost to death, it seems like. But now, that all changed. They're ready to stone him to death. Now they're ready to kill him. You know, when you make the decision to cross over into the land of the Philistines, there's, pri- there's a price to pay. There is a price to pay. All is not, seems, all's not as it seems to be. It may seem you know, great on the other side if you go into the world may seem like a great thing, but it's not what it's cracked up to be. And if you're seeking security in anything but the Lord at all, then you're placing your faith in a very uncertain foundation. I tell you what, circumstances will change for you. They're going to change, and when they do, your faith's going to be shaken. If you're trusting in anything but the Lord at all, if you trust in the world, if you trust in its resources, you're going to be disappointed. That's why you've got to make sure you're building your house on the right foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. It says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the what? On the rock, right? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been found on the rock. However, everyone who hears the words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I mean, you're asking for trouble when you cross into the land of the Philistines. And so David paid the price. I mean, his decision to go to this place has brought him into two crises situations. The first, a crisis of allegiance, and secondly, a crisis of mutiny. There's a mutiny. You know what a mutiny is, don't you? Normally, we think of a mutiny uh, at, happening at sea, sailors rising up against their captain. They're out at sea there, and they think they can get away with a revolt against authority. But it could be that actually a mutiny can happen under any circumstances in any kind of revolt. And what we have here is a brewing mutiny. And that's something that no captain ever wants to have happen. It destroys everything, destroys the whole military uh, unit. These men are bitter. They're angry. They're probably talking, when you have a mutiny, people talk behind your back. People talk privately and they discuss plans that the leader doesn't know about. And they say things uh, the leader doesn't know about. And they make plans to take the leader out. And then they begin to talk, and then it becomes public in this case. And they talk about killing their leader as if that would have solved anything at all. Now, if they had killed David, what what would that have accomplished at all? Nothing. It would have made matters much worse. But they've, they've got this mutiny brewing on their hands. They should have remained loyal to him. All that they've been through, all the adversity they've been through together, they should have remained loyal to him, but now they're ready to turn, him, turn on him and kill him. You know, that's one of the perils of leadership. The people that follow you today, they could possibly turn on you tomorrow. That can happen. And that's why unity is so important. Churches split regularly over, over matters regarding leadership. Either the people aren't, aren't up, either the leaders make unwise decisions or... Churches are unhappy with the decisions that are made oftentimes, so you have church splits. So you've got to understand that churches are led by imperfect men under the leadership of Christ, men who are flawed, and leaders should do the best they can 
under the enabling of the Spirit to lead churches, but they will not always be what you want them to be. It's true. Well, by the way, we only ask you don't stone the leadership like they wanted to do here. But what is David to do in this crisis? Uh, he's, he's, in a, he's in a real jam here. What, what can he do? The families are captured. Uh, his wives are captured, two wives. We talked about that earlier. <laughs> he's got this possible mutiny on his hands. Um, what is he going to do? Well, he does what he should have done back in chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, remember in chapter 27, 1, we read it already. He said, there's nothing better for me to do than to escape into the land of the Philistines. That's, he should have done what he did here. Look at chapter 30, verse 6, the end of it. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Finally, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You know, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 has always been one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's such a comforting verse. David just went to the Lord with his problems. We've been waiting for this to happen all this time. He went to the Lord with his problems. In chapter 27, David doesn't make a move to the Lord at all. He says, I, I guess there's nothing else for me to do other than, you know, get out of here, get out of Israel and go to the land of the Philistines. Maybe I can find some refuge over there. Doesn't do anything to move to the Lord in chapter 27. In chapter 29, you see the king of Gath mentioning the Lord by name, but David is saying nothing about the Lord at all. No mention of the Lord from David. But now David is crushed. He's crushed by, by his circumstances. He's been brought low by his circumstances, his afflictions. And, and he has no other choice than to cast his burdens upon the Lord. And he's, he's burdened. He's troubled. He's, he is underneath a great load. But guess what? He finds spiritual strength. He finds renewal in the Lord. He encourages himself in the Lord his God. Now, you remember what, what happened in chapter 23? Look, look back at chapter 23, verse 16. Remember when Jonathan came to David down in the desert? And uh, he wanted to encourage him. That's why he came down. Look at chapter 23, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish. And what did he do? He encouraged him in God. Literally, he strengthened his hand in God. Then he said to David, Do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You don't need to go to uh, Philistine territory. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. Why did Jonathan go down in the desert to David? He wanted to encourage him to strengthen his hand in God. And that's what he did it for. That's the only reason he went down there. So David was encouraged. But in time, time passes, and David gets discouraged again. And David's not thinking about Jonathan's encouragement. And David's not thinking about the Lord's promise. I'm going to make you king one day in Israel. And David's thinking he's going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. And so... This crisis comes to him, and his men threaten to stone him to death, and, he, and he's brought to the realization that the Lord alone is his strength. He's brought to that realization, I've got to go to the Lord. You know, there's a time and a place to encourage other believers, like Jonathan did. That's always in order, by the way. We should always be doing that. Uh, we should always encourage other believers. And it's okay, by the way, to go to your pastor or your or fellow Christian for counsel, spiritual counsel and help. Nothing wrong with that at all. However, as Mike has said often, before you seek out another Christian or your pastor, who do you go to first? You go to the Lord first, right? I'll repeat that. You go to the Lord first. That's what we've got to do. Go to the Lord first. Learn to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. Strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. You know, there's a teaching going around now, by the way. Uh, it's coming on to the forefront. Front, and, it's, and, and, and what's being said is that sanctification is a process whereby God alone works in your life. 
You really don't do anything except look back to your salvation. But that's not true. Be careful of that teaching, by the way, which may come on stronger as time passes on. It sounds like the revival of an era back in the 1800s in England called the Keswick Movement. And they were saying, let go and let God. God will do it all in your sanctification process. You don't have to do much of anything at all. Just kind of sit around and let God do everything. Now, it's true that God alone saves from sin. We know this, right? Jesus died for the sins of his people. And he, and he rose again. And he will save all who come to him. If you don't know the Lord and you come to Christ and repent of your sins and trust him, he will save you for eternity. Yes, that's true. Salvation is solely the work of God. We know that. But in sanctification, that is our growth in grace, we cooperate with God. We cooperate. We're not passive in our, in our sanctification. We're not passive in our spiritual growth. We're very active. You know, we, we depend upon the Lord. Of course we do. As soon as you bring this up, someone says, oh, you've got to depend upon... Of course we depend upon the Lord 100%. Of course we seek to be filled with the Spirit. Of course we're dependent upon the Lord in everything. And we take the attitude of Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I'll live by the faith of the Son of God who died, me, who died for me, right? And so we do that. Yes, we're totally dependent upon the Lord for, for our sanctification. However, we, don't, we do our part. We seek the Lord. And we fight against sin, and we, and we run from temptation, and we do all these things. We fight the good fight of faith. Do you know, what does it say in chapter 30, verse 6? It says, David strengthened himself. That's an accurate translation. I think there's a translation, I think it's the NIV, that says something, that David found strength in the Lord. No, it's literally, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It's an action David himself took. On his part, he's not letting go and letting God. It's not happening. He's actively seeking the Lord. You know what it says in 1 Timothy 4, 7? It says, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself. Why? For the purpose of godliness. That's why. So you actively seek the Lord. We take an active pursuit in our sanctification. Think of all the commands in the Bible that says to seek the Lord, all the encouragements in the Bible to trust the Lord, to find refuge in the Lord, uh, to... Uh, work with all your might for the Lord and so, serve Him and worship Him. So many things it says for, these are commands for us to do. The Bible's full of all these kind of exhortations. Pursue the Lord and David strengthened himself in God, it says. Let me ask you a question. Are you distressed tonight? Are you in distress as David was in great distress in this chapter? Are you, are people, have people turned against you in your life and maybe you're at odds with others? Are you facing a crisis of some kind in your life tonight? If that's true, my advice is to do what David did. Uh, and don't do this when you, only when you come to a crisis, but do this every day. Learn to strengthen yourself in God. Learn to find encouragement in the Lord for yourself. How do you do that? You meditate on God's Word. You go to His Word. You feed your soul with His Word. And you think about the things of God, the promises of God, and the encouragements of God. And you seek the Lord in prayer. And you go to Him and cast all your cares upon Him for why? He cares for you, right? And so you do this. You strengthen yourself in God. Very important verse. Look at verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, <clears throat> the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Remember, David has the priest with him right now. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band, this band of the Amalekites? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 were too exhausted to cross the brook, the brook resort, and they remained behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. 
and they gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clutches of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. <clears throat> and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. He admits to it. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down into this band. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread. The Amalekites were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode away on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. David gets encouraged in God, and with the help of the priest and the guidance of God, he pursues the Amalekites. 400 men stay with him while 200 stay behind. The 200, by the way, they're exhausted and staying behind because they had traveled three days to Ziklag. They're all tired out, just too tired to go on. And they said, look, we're going to stay here. We're not going to be of any help to you in the battle. We're weary. 400 men go with him. On their way, they find an Egyptian who hadn't eaten anything. for. He's, laying in, he's in a field somewhere, not even named. He hadn't eaten anything for three days and three nights. He was a servant of Amalek, an Amalekite that had been left behind when he got sick. And he would have died had David not found him. You know what? We have another example of God's providence. Again, this time in the form of an Egyptian slave who is left in an open field somewhere, no one knows where, who is starving to death. And yet David feeds him and gets him alive. Now there's nothing... And there's no one that God can't use to bring about his purposes. I mean, who would have imagined this poor guy out there, can you see him in the field laying there probably starving to death thinking, I'm dead. I haven't eaten anything for three days and three nights. I'm going to die. There's nobody here. Everybody's gone. They're having a, he doesn't know what they're doing, but they're having a feast somewhere. He's laying in the field by himself, and yet God brings David to this guy and revives him for the purpose of, of telling him where the Amalekites are. And so God uses this Egyptian slave out in the middle of nowhere for his purposes, just like he used the pagan Philistine commanders for his purposes, providence, providence of God. So the Egyptian tells David, the Amalekites, yes, they had raided Ziklag, they'd burn it with fire, and he says, yes, I'll tell you where I think they went, and he points to their location, and David goes and sees them all out there eating the spoils, they're having a big picnic out there, enjoying all the food, and verse 17 says, David slaughtered them, with the exception of 400 men who flee away on camels. Now you say to yourself, why did David kill all these Amalekites? What, was that kind of a cruel thing to be doing? Well, do you remember chapter 15 when God said to Saul, I want you to wipe out all the Amalekites, and Saul kept the king alive and the best of the flock? Here David does his best because God has fierce wrath reserved against the Amalekites, chapter 28 says. David now does what Saul should have done. He's doing his best with 600 men trying to wipe the Amalekites out. He's trying to obey the command of God. Verse 19 and 20 said they recovered everything, just like the Lord had said they would in verse 8. Look at verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, this is after they recover everything, 
who had also been left at the brook Bezor, they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David, yes, David had guys following him who were wicked and worthless. There's always that group, right? And they, they come up to David, these wicked guys, and they say, because they did not go with us, these 200 guys didn't go with us to battle, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except to every man his wife and his children that we may lead them, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you on this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So these wicked and worthless men, they must have been a thorn in David's side, by the way. They say, look, we're not sharing with these 200 guys. They didn't go to battle with us. They stayed behind and took a break. Why should we share with them? But David makes an executive decision, and he says, look, those who fought in the battle are going to receive a portion. Those who didn't fight in the battle, they're going to receive a portion. Uh, we're going to share and share alike. David's looking out for everybody, looking out for all the soldiers. Just like, by the way, we need to look out for all the brethren. We've got weaker brethren in the church. We've got people who are spiritually mature in the church. We can't leave just because, because they are that way. We have to look out for them as well as the advanced people that are advanced in their faith. Believers share and share alike. And David even made a law in Israel. Look, the spoils of battle are to be shared by all. Look at verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah and to his friends saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who are in Bethel and to those who are in Ramoth of the Negev and to those who are in Jatir and to those who are in Aurora and to those who are in Sifmoth and, and Eshtemoa, and to those who are in Recall, and to those who are in the city of the Jeremelites, and to those who are in the city of the Kenites, and to those who are in Horma, and to those who are in Borishon, and to those who are in Athak, and to those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. You know what happened here? All these are cities in Judah. David sends a, a part of the spoils to the people back in Judah, the people where, where he had where he'd come from. He sends a gift back to them of the spoils, and, he, and places where he had gone and hidden from Saul, he gives a portion to them and sends them a gift. It's a gift to these people of Judah. At the same time, David is strengthening his, his ties with the people back in Judah. That's what he's doing here. And he says, this is a gift from the enemies of the Lord. Now, the Amalekites were truly enemies of the Lord, right? Now, the ironic thing here is David came that close to fighting alongside the enemies of the Lord, but the Lord delivered him from that. You know, David, as we look back at this, these two chapters, David survived his own, his own unwise decision to go to the land of, the Phil of Philistia. He barely escaped going to war with the Philistines. Barely escaped that. He managed to put down the mutiny that was against them. But how did he do all this? How did all this happen? It happened because of the Lord's gracious intervention. It was the Lord who encouraged David, right? Chapter 20, chapter, verse 6, chapter 30. It was the Lord who kept them, according to verse 23, another great verse. It was the Lord who guided them, who gave David guidance to find the Amalekites. It was the Lord who blessed them. It was the Lord who delivered the Amalekites in their hands. It was the Lord all the way. He was the one who would see to it that David would one day become king. Just as he said he would do this, he's fulfilling his promise, getting David out of all kinds of trouble that he creates for himself. Doesn't God do that for us? Look back over your life and think, think about all the messes you've gotten yourself into. Think about that. How many messes have we gotten ourselves into in our life? 
And it's the Lord who got us through all that. Now, he may have let us uh, feel the pain of our foolish decisions, just like these guys cried when their loved ones were captured. He may have, he may have let you feel the pain of the decisions you've made. I've made decisions that I've felt great pain over in my life, great pain, and, and wept over. And he may have let you feel such pain, but it is God who has kept us through all that. He's the one who's kept us. Were it not for the Lord, think about this, we would be lost in our sins. Our lives would be nothing but a total spiritual disaster if we're not for the Lord's intervention. Our lives would be that way. So as we leave tonight, think back over your life. Think back over how God has rescued you in his providence. Think about his mercy. Think about his grace, his kindness, his providence in your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's thank him tonight for all you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for your, for your gracious providence in our life. We're, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what we can learn from it. We're thankful that you have blessed us in so many ways. We take these things for granted and we don't think about them. Thank you for your salvation in Christ. Thank you for rescuing us from our sin. We, Lord, we did the greatest act of providence of all was when you rescued each, each one of us from our sin when we were dead in our sins and how you've brought us through our lives and helped us in so many ways. Thank you for that, Lord. We just pray we'll trust in you in, all the, in, in the days to come. And we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.